Welcome to Wednesday morning. And I just was standing back there thinking about this is Wednesday and um, thinking about some times early on in this this adventure. And we would get to Wednesday and we'd kind of be looking at each other like we don't really know what just happened or how much more can happen. And Merle would say, brothers, it's not a time to coast. <laughs> it's not time to coast. So I would like to hear quickly three things from yesterday. Three things from yesterday, from, from this session. Jesus is session. Vicarious. Vicarious. All right. Behoove. <laughs> All right. So this is a review. Vicarious. Vicarious. And behooved. Had to be divine. I need something else. He's our captain. Thank you. Just checking what stuck. Um, hopefully you wrote down something um, that you plan to dig into deeper. And I don't need to hear what that is. I um, just, I feel like all we're doing here is just sort of cracking open the top and looking in and saying, wow, there's a lot in there. Um, I wonder what, what I could dig into more some other time. The conclusion that we had from yesterday, just to kind of carry some continuity here through these sessions, Jesus was completely faithful where Adam was not, and thereby restores to us what was lost in Adam, yea, even more than was lost. That's what, that was our conclusion yesterday. We, we didn't quite meet both of our goals yesterday, so we'll see if we can bring in a little bit of that today. Um, so, just a quick disclaimer here. We most often think of the Lord in terms of immediate personal lordship and how that plays out in our lives. And that's appropriate. The theme is complex enough. Uh, th this lesson focuses on who Jesus is as Lord and concludes with a few high-level implications of that reality. So we're not going to do the, the, the um, we're, we're still focused on ontology and not as much on axiology. And that has plenty of application and it, and it, it filters through through some of the other messages. So if you'll allow us, we're just going to stay as close to our assignment as we can. The Lord. This was probably the most rewarding of these studies for me personally. And um, I don't really know what the reasons are for that. But what we're thinking about so Jesus is Lord, and there's a specific phrase that we're going to, to explore, and that is, He has put all things 
Where? Under his feet. We just heard that read this morning. Should that be capitalized or not? He has put all things under. Yes. Yes? Are you sure? His feet. All right, it's going to be interesting because we have two pro. I think they're called pronouns. There. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. This was the showstopper right here. This shut all the questioning down. There was nobody who dared ask him a question after this. When he brought this out, that reference is Matthew 22, 41 through 46. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? What do you understand by the term Lord as it's used in the New Testament? We know the drill by now. Okay, Master. What do you understand by this term Lord? Lord means teacher. We're just going to, yeah. Father? Ruler? What else? I heard something over here. Lord. What do we mean? It's a term that I think has come to mean something to us. Sorry? King? King. Sure. I, I, can't, owner? Creator, I heard something back there. Superior. Superior. Leader. Alright. That's that's probably good enough. For now. Um, how do you suppose this title was understood at the first at the time of the first English translations of the Bible? Now we're gonna get into just a little bit more nuance. So so this term, Lord, is an English term. But the people, what did, what did they understand by Lord? Let's try to put ourselves back in 1611 or so. What did they understand by Lord, do you think? If you know much. Okay. Is that, yeah, monarchy. So we got that. They understood monarchy. What else do you think? Just imagine. You're one of the seven, you're one of King James's translators. He was one of the, he owned all the land. A, a, a lord. Tell, us, tell me about that. Where's that thing at? That. Oh, thanks. Tell us about lords. 1611. 
in the feudal system, like the Lord owned all the land and everybody worked for him okay. and paid him half or more. So they didn't own any of the land. They just kind of worked for... Everybody understand that? I think that's kind of helpful for us just to get a little bit of context of what these, these people who translated Greek into English, why they chose that term. Because it was, it was a common term. They, couldn't, they didn't tra transliterate curios. They went with Lord because it was going to connect right rapidly with a concept they were familiar with. So when we're talking about the Lord, they understood this to be someone with a lot of authority. I mean, he, he basically held um, complete authority over a specific region. And I didn't go into depth there, but is there a way that we could learn what the New Testament writers and their contemporaries understood by the word that they used? And there's two. There's, um, I, I actually avoid this sort of behavior, but I'm going to do it a little bit here. The other one was, um, I kind of forget. It was, yes, it was this one. This is, I, I don't know how to, to write the Greek letters very well, so I'm going to just do it this way. These are the two Greek words. What do you think, how can we get at what they understood when they were writing this down under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, how do you think we could try to get at these meanings? These are the two words that are translated Lord in the New Testament. How could we get at that? We have to get in a time machine. Or, okay, that would be one way. Early Christian writings. You'd have yeah. to understand the setting. How would we do that? Looking at history and... Okay. Uh, some context, some literary criticism. Which is dangerous. The culture of the time a bit. There's a really simple way, and that is just look up all the references to Lord and look at them in their context. That's, that's I mean, all of these are very, very good, and they're part of it. But within everybody's reach is just simply doing a word search on Lord. And that's a, a very rewarding exercise that I would encourage you to do. Just a quick word search and comparing what's the same, what's different, what is repeated, what's related, alike, unlike, what is true to life, what is emphasized in, these, in this term. So that one was free. Um, I'm going to jump in here because I always end up spending too much time trying to lay some groundwork and we don't really get into what we wanted to get to. So we're just going to jump in um, to this thing of He has put all things under His feet. He is Lord of all. He is Lord of all by inheritance according to Hebrews chapter 1 by inheritance. He's also Lord of all by virtue of creating. He's the creator. He's the undisputed Lord. He's, the, he's also the Lord of all 
by virtue of something else, and I wonder if you can tell me what it is. He's Lord of all by inheritance. I'm letting you think about it while I write these up here. By virtue of creating, by virtue of by redeeming, by virtue of redeeming, he bought it. And there's a very lengthy discussion in one of Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield's books about the importance of this term redeemed and ransomed and all that. Um, by virtue of creating, by redeeming, but this is where we're, it gets really exciting. He is Lord of all as the last Adam. And the second man. That's where we're going to focus most of our time today. He is Lord of all because he's the last Adam and he's the second man. We're still kind of in this thing of as in Adam all die. We're still kind of in this thing of he's a representative. He's our new Head, and you can find some of that language in Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at the first mention of this phrase in the New Testament. Where do we find this phrase here? He has put all things under his feet. The, um, the original, the, the, where is it at? Is it when God speaks to David? Where do we, what's the reference? Where, what's the, um, the Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Psalm 8. And this Psalm 8 is quoted three times that I've found in the, in the New Testament. In the first reference we're going to read, we're going to read this first reference. We're not going to spend our time here, but we're going to read Ephesians 1, 15 to 21. Who has not read yet? All right. Ephesians 1, 15 to 21. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thank you. That is so packed. What we're looking at here specifically is that we would somehow be given supernatural ability to comprehend what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us. 
with the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His own right hand and, and put all things under His feet. There's some kind of glorious power at work here that has done this. In, in Paul's prayer, and my prayer for us today, is that somehow we would just be able to have this wisdom and revelation to be able to grasp that in some degree. So let's turn now to Hebrews 2. We're going to skip over the middle one and come back to it. Hebrews 2. There's a whole lot more that we're going to get out of Hebrews 2. If I can find it. Hebrews chapter 2. So somebody else, if you can just kind of pass it across. Who hasn't read on this side? Uh, Preston. So pass that to Preston. He, Preston is going to read for us Hebrews 2. And let's just read um, 5 to 9 for now. <clears throat> for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come wherein we speak. But one is in a certain place testifying, saying... What is a man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of a man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedest him with the glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under thy, his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now he we see... Not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who has made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Thank you. So what the writer here is doing is he's, he's doing something very... Uh, subtle in a way, but not so subtle in another way. It's just he's trying to help us understand what, what God is talking about in this particular passage. And he, but he's, he's trying to help us see who Christ is. Exactly who is this Christ? Who is this Jesus? So he says, He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. What does he mean by the world to come? Anybody? What's that? The new heavens and the new earth. I was trying to think if there's a reference to it here. Is he referring back to something else? He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection, in subjection to angels. And I think he may be referring back to um, this, this scepter of righteousness, scepter of your kingdom, and um, that. But anyway, he, he has not put the world to come in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, and we know that's Psalm 8, and we know that was David. What is man? And so without getting too wound up here and lost 
in, out in the weeds. Let's talk about this just a little bit. When David wrote this, who was he talking about? If, we, if it helps, you could turn back to Psalm 8 just to kind of get, get back in that setting for your mind. Who was David thinking about? What exactly was he saying? What did he mean by this? Before we can try to ex understand what the author of Hebrews was, was pulling out of it, we have to understand what David meant by it. What did David mean when he said, I look at, at the stars and the heavens and I am just in awe. I'm in awe. And then when I lower my gaze down, I just think, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. Who is he talking about in this context right here? Does everybody agree with Skyler that he's talking about Jesus? You sure? What do you think? I think it's talking about us. About, about man? Yeah. Why do you say that? In the context of um, that it's lower. Okay. Um, anybody else? So now we've got two ideas. Anybody else? Want to be brave enough to give an a uh, thought on this? I think it's Jesus. You think it's Jesus? Why? Where's that thing because at? Because in verse four is, "What is the Son of Man that thou visitest him?" Speaking of the Son of Man. Verse four said what? In verse four, uh, what is and man it, and the Son of Man that thou visitest him? Who visited whom? I'm not sure. Yeah. See, that's the problem. But it's not. <laughs> I, think it's, uh, man, I think it's talking about man as well. It's a little lower than you. <clears throat> okay. So, this is the kind of activity that, that we want to cultivate. Like, to be able to do this kind of thing and, and look at this and say, what, what is he, who's he talking about? And not just come up with some opinion that only we can agree with. It, it. So he's saying, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, what is man? So he's not talking about Christ. What is Christ that you are mindful of him? That, that's because, because Christ made all that stuff. You with me? He's saying, we're just so little and insignificant, really, in the grand scheme of things. We just live on this little planet that's, like, I don't know how much he knew, but, but the more we learn, the more insignificant man really becomes. What is man that you even bother paying attention to him, and especially that you would visit him, that God would come to this earth and walk around and, and interact with us? What is man, anyway? You've made him a little bit lower than the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. I'm going to pull this thing out here. 
because this is this is important again. God made man just slightly a lesser degree of a being than the angels, but crowned him with a, a glory and an honor and gave him a specific role that was very profound. And, and David's just thinking about that and saying, wow, all this stuff that you did and you entrusted all of that to man. And he's just in awe. And he's saying, you've made him... I mean, I can see maybe if you'd have done that for the angels, but to man, who's of a lower being, order of being than, than angels, you've crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. He's talking about man, Adam and Eve, that were supposed to be fruitful. Now, how many of you think that this means to have a lot of children? That's fine. It's included in there, but certainly not limited to that, folks. It is not limited to that because you can be very, very fruitful and never have a child. And you can, be very, you can multiply. And that is what we're in the business of doing here at Bible School is multiplying disciples. And that is your calling. And you can go out and fill the earth. You don't have to stay piled up in Kittitas County. You can go out and you can fill and you can go out and you can, you can preach Jesus to people so that they come and, and, and submit themselves to Him and all of these things. So that is, this is talking about mankind. You have made Him, mankind, to have dominion over the works of your hands. And just so that things are clear, you have put all things under His feet. That was the original. That was. That's how it was. And then and he, he says, sheep, oxen, maybe looking around, those sheep over there, and those oxen there, and, and beasts, and then the birds, and well, I guess the fish too, and everything that passes through the paths of the seas. And he's just like, wow, why, how? So how's that working out? How's that working out? Um, let's look at the, the verse 8 specifically here back in Hebrews 2 verse 8. You have put all things in subjection under His feet. For in that He put all in subjection under Him, He left nothing that is not put under Him. But now we do not see all things put under Him. Let's talk about these pronouns quickly. Who is Him? Okay. We've got three of them, I think. So let's just, let's just put them out here. He, read it off to me and I'll just, and I'll work up here. Somebody. Can you what verse, verse 8, B, C, and D. He put all things in subjection. Yeah, and then after that. For that, for in that. For in that he put all, he put all in subjection under him. He left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under Him. Okay, we want to supply the proper noun for every one of those pronouns. And I already gave you a clue on the first one. Because it's a dead giveaway. Who's the first one talking about? God. God hath put all in subjection under Him. Equals who? Man. But now we do not see yet 
see all things. What does it say? He left nothing that is not put under him. Who is the him here? Man. It's still man. He left nothing that is not put under him. This is amazing. Well, then what does it say? But now we do not yet see all things put under him. Jesus? I think it's still man at this point. And that's the whole point that, that the author is leading up to. He's saying, we have got a dilemma. We have a problem. And it's a big problem because the Bible is very clear that all things are put under our feet. How is that working out for us? I, you can almost see in the mind of this author, like, how is that working out? How's that going for you? All things under your feet. We do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus. And now he's making the connection. Now he's making the connection for his auditors that there is somebody who came and who did and who is. Now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a, a little lower than the angels. He was. We talked about that yesterday. For the suffering of death. We see him crowned with glory and honor. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Inasmuch then, as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. For indeed, he does not take on the nature of angels, but he took on the nature of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Let's turn now to 1 Corinthians 15. So that is the meaning, and, and that's the real crux of this, this whole thing that we've sort of been building up to all along, of this whole representative. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. He, so we're talking about the Lord, and we're talking about the fact that He is our head. He is head of all things. He is, all things are put under His feet. 1 Corinthians 15. So, so we're talking about this representative. Can somebody quickly tell me, do I need this? I don't think I need that. Talk to me about a representative. What does that mean? Okay. Representative. Everybody agree with that? A representative is an ambassador? Yes. Serving someone higher than himself. Okay. Damage? Hold on. Sir, um, under, I'll just say under authority because that's too many words. Image. What else? I heard something on the lady's side. Filling, 
place of heard something back here. A, a representative is a substitute. We've been using a lot of of uh, synonyms for representative. We've had vicarious and we've had surrogate and things like that. So let me just give you this definition. Not because it's better at all. Not to not to negate or minimize the, the definition that you gave because that's you need to do that. Keep your minds active. Representative is a person chosen or appointed to speak on behalf of a wider group. And I, and I see that in what um, an example of a class or group. So they represent a class or group. And so they're, when they show up, when, when Joe Biden shows up, they say the United States is here. The United States is here because he represents the United States. He's the head. He's, he's our representative, so forth. So there's another little nuance. Do I really want to go there? How important is that one? Nope. It's not very important. All right. Let's see. We're going to jump in here. Um, I hope you can fasten your seat belts. Okay, um, I'm just going to jump in at verse 35, no, that's not even what I want. I want up here in verse 20, verse 18, um, well, yeah. First Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most miserable. And I would say if, only, if in the next life only you have hope in Christ, beloved, you're pretty miserable. Even though both of those statements, I think, have their place. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The same idea here, the first fruits. He's gone before. He's the representative. He's the, it's, this, it's like in this representative concept, Jesus has gathered up as the last Adam. We haven't gone to that phrase yet. Um, stabbing around here, trying to figure out how to get through this. Um, let me just read this quickly. But now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ said is coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him 
is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. So in effect, Jesus as the last Adam gathers up all that was in Adam and He dies. It's this representative like He is that grain of wheat that fell into the ground and died. But when He died and He gathered up there's so many different metaphors that we've been talking about and thinking about and from um, looking into that cup and, and his, his gathering up my sin and your sin and all of this. Everything in Adam, not just our sins, but everything in Adam, he gathered it up and he died. That's why he's the last Adam and not the second Adam. He is the last Adam. Adam is done. It's over. Adam finished. It's like if you had this folder and you burnt it. Not only have you burnt this folder, you've burnt everything in it. Everything is gone. It's like deleting a file on, in your, um, word, your, your whatever it is, those machines that you use. <laughs> Computer, yes. <laughs> like you delete the file, not just some individual part of that file, not just a document within it. You take the whole file and you delete it. That's the idea that Jesus is the last Adam. He collected everything that was related to Adam. When He became incarnate, He gathered up in Himself all that was for Adam, and He died. He deleted that folder. And he is the first fruits of those who died. Verse 20. And he's Christ the first fruits in verse 23. For whom, please? Anybody? Verse 23. Who is he the first fruits for in verse 23? Those that are Christ's. So there's an important thing that we need to look at. Man, I wish that clock was behind me. Second um, Corinthians, turn with me to Second Corinthians. We'll just get as far as we can and we'll just be happy with that. Second Corinthians 5, where it says, um, If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're sound mind, it's for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new, because all that other stuff, he died. They're, they're dead. When Jesus, before God, died in your place, he eliminated. It, it, that's, that's part of this, this thing. We're looking at it now in terms of gathering up all in Adam and dying. That those who live, how many of them? There's a specific um, limiter or whatever in here. He died for all that those who live, not everybody gets to live again. That's the facts from this text. 
So let's jump back here to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Still trying to wade through here. Um, so he's the first fruits. And then it says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. He's faithfully fulfilling God's plan for dominion. I, I hope that you can see that. He is faithfully fulfilling God's plan. God didn't, in fact, have to jettison His plan that He had in Genesis chapter 1. He didn't have to throw it away. Because Jesus came and He gathered up all that was wasted. And He buried that. And, and then comes the end when He will deliver the kingdom to His Father. He's put an... Um, he will put an end. So there's three things with inside this uh, delivering the kingdom to his father. The, one, the first thing we see within the delivering the kingdom to his father, he's handing it back to, to God and saying, it, it's this image of, ask of me and I will give the, you the, the heathen for your inheritance. And, and he's, and it's this, this, there's parables that Jesus taught about a man went into a far country to receive a kingdom. And but he, but he received this kingdom and he's given it back to his father. Here it is, God. I, we did it. Here it is. And part of that is putting an end to all rule and authority and power. That means wrapping up the mandate for the nations. And I don't know if we'll get a chance to look at that on Friday or not. Putting an end to all rule and authority and power. He must reign. He faithfully fulfills the role assigned to David. The thing that I left out was all those types that maybe I shouldn't have left out. But anyway, we've got Adam. We've got Noah. I just mentioned David. And then it says here, He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, yea, even death itself. What did we see in Hebrews chapter 2? We saw that he not only destroyed death, but he destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He destroys him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now we are free from the law of sin and death. We are free from the law of sin and death. The sting of death is what? Death wouldn't be so bad if it wouldn't be for what? Sin. And the strength of sin is what? So if it wouldn't have been, death wouldn't be near so bad. If there wasn't this thing called sin, and we wouldn't even know what sin is except for this thing we call the law. But Jesus came and He fulfilled that and now I'm free from the law of sin and death. So you can see how He has put even death under His feet in some degree already, even now. So then um, the last Adam, if we would go down here now, and I'm going to wrap up here with this. Let's jump down to verse um, 44, or 40, yeah, we need the middle of 44. There is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And here's where it gets beautiful, folks. This is where it becomes practical and not just some... Like, who cares anyway, kind of thing. I mean, yeah, we care, but, but we're just practical enough that if we can't 
get our hands on it somewhere. It, it slips away. Here's where I think we can get our hands on it. This, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And we transition now to this thing of him being the second man. However, the spiritual was not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. This second man, this, this last Adam, this second man is a life-giving spirit. What we're talking about now is the power of the resurrected life. He, and this power is conferred on all who are in Christ, and only those who are in Christ. This power, this life-giving spirit that is conferred on all, it says, as was the earthly, I know, this is really technical, isn't it? So is the heavenly. That's our hope. As he is, so are we in this world. 1 John 4, 17. The power of the resurrected life is transforming us back into that image that was lost. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it says, We all with unveiled face, beholding us in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. This is what the Lord is doing to bring all things in subjection under His feet. He's not doing it with a rod of iron. He's doing it from the inside out. And He becomes a life-giving Spirit. And He comes and He indwells us. And He begins to work with us. And He begins to, to change us into that same image. Because every one of us has borne the image of the earthly. We're, we've, done, we've been there. Been of the earth. Made of dust. But now we have this opportunity through this life-giving Spirit to, bear, to begin to bear the image of the heavenly man. And it's consummated... This, this power of the resurrected life is consummated when we are raised incorruptible. The Bible stands open here today and says, Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye. And, and so our citizenship, this is, is another reference here, Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. The Lord has all things. We do not yet see all things but under Him. We don't see that yet, but we see Jesus. 
we see Jesus, who was made for a little time lower than the angels for the suffering of death, we see him crowned with glory and honor. And we see him as the last Adam, becoming the second man. There's a new race of people on the earth now. There's a new race. And as we enter into that through faith in Christ, he comes in and begins to transform us into that image so that we come under his lordship out of a willing heart. Out of a willing heart. And he begins to transform us. And we start to bear the image of the heavenly man. And that's exciting. Therefore, and I'm going to jump back now here, just as we close. You remember that, that verse, Philippians 2, 5 to 11, where it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Well, later on it says something else. It says, Wherefore God also has highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul said once, no man, where is it? I don't know if I can quickly lay eyes on it. No man, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That's a fascinating text. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And I think I'd like to overlay these two verses. He's talking about every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it is in that condition that nobody can say that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father except it's the Holy Spirit at work in his heart. And there's a lot of things that that looks like, and I'm sure the brothers will talk more about that during the day. So I, what I'd like to do, this says that every knee is going to bow and Every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord in the glory of God the Father. And so I'd like to just do that right now. I'd like to just get on our knees and, and I'd like to just, however you choose to do that, um, but it has to be you. Nobody can do it for you, but I want you to get on your knees and I want you to proclaim Jesus and confess Jesus as Lord to the glory of God the Father here for a minute or two.